0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover Romans 2, chapter, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. The topic of Paul's conversation here as he writes to the Romans is the Jews and their law. And he basically is going to make one point, which I'm going to emphasize over and over again, is that just because you have the law, that doesn't mean a ding-dong darn thing if you don't keep it, because then you are nothing but a hypocrite. The context is this. In the first 11 verses of Romans 2, Paul talked about how God was perfectly just to judge people. And it's unclear whether he's talking about judging Gentiles with their law of conscience or whether he's talking about judging the Jews with the law of Moses. I took the position that it was probably the, the Jews. He's talking about it was perfectly just to, that the wrath of God falls on those who break the Mosaic law. But at any rate, it's true, whether it's Gentiles or Jews, God, is going to judge those who break the law. So now he's talking about, he set the stage here by talking about what a serious thing it is to break the law, and he's he's now going to talk to the Jews and say, look, you have broken the law. Just because you've got the law doesn't mean you're going to escape this wrath and indignation I've just been talking about in the first 11 verses. So we start with verse 12 of Romans 2. All those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Well, now, we need to talk about law. That word is is used in all kinds of shapes and fashions in the Scripture. Here it's clear, though, it refers to the Mosaic law. So when Paul says all those who sin without the law, he's talking about Gentiles. They sin without the law. They don't have the Mosaic law. They'll also die without the law. They will perish without the law. Why? Well, Well, we'll see later. They have the law of their conscience, which condemns them, and they will die because they cannot keep the law of their conscience. That God put into their hearts. And all those who sin under the law, that will be the Jews who sin under the law of Moses, will be judged by the law. Now, I mentioned that Gentiles will perish without the law. If they sin without the law, which of course they do, they will be condemned by their conscience. I mentioned that. Let me point out the scripture that shows that. In Romans 1, the previous chapter, verses 18, 19, and 20, we read this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Romans 2.15 which I'm going to read in three verses later, but I'll jump ahead here. They show, the Gentiles show, that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirmed this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse or excuse them. So people violate their conscience, they're going to perish. They're going to die. They need Jesus. Now, it's true that Gentiles can satisfy satisfy their conscience in some things, but they can't satisfy their conscience in everything. Everybody's got a guilty conscience. You know that as well as I know that. Here's another verse that shows the Gentile consciousness, or conscience, at work, James four seventeen. So it is sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. So I didn't grow up with the Mosaic Law, but I had a conscience I know darn well. I'm guilty of a million different things because my conscience told me so. Now Paul is talking about sinning. All those who sin without law will perish without the law, and all those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. What does sin mean? Well, we use that word all the time, the the Greek word is hamartano, hamartano, to miss the mark, to err, to be mistaken, to violate God's law, as Thayer's lexicon has. To miss the mark. That's, that's well known. And of course, all of us have sinned, you or a Gentile. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We go now to Romans 2.13. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. Now Paul is getting ready to get on his soapbox against these Jews who keep saying, We have the articles of God, we have Moses, therefore we're justified. And those nasty Gentile dogs don't have the Moses Mosaic law, so therefore they are doomed and we are not. And Paul is getting ready to disabuse them of this unfortunate notion. Heroes of the law, that just means people who sit down and listen to the Jewish rabbis in the synagogues talking about the law of Moses says this and the law of Moses says that. And then they go out and they, and they commit adultery with the next woman they can find. Or well, they lie, they steal, they cheat. No. Just because you listen to the law, just because you have the law, that doesn't make you righteous before God. You have to do the law to be declared righteous Now. When it says the doers of the law, we have two options here. Does that mean keeping the law perfectly? Well, that's impossible. Or does it mean doing what the law requires because one is empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, even then you're not going to do it righteously. So I think that Paul is not talking about absolute salvific righteousness here. It just basically means you're going to be a just person. Uh, You're not going to be a sinful person dirty, filthy, reprobate. You're just going to be what we would call civic righteousness a good person. That's how you're going to be declared righteous, but, but you've got to do it. Or could he could be, he could be, be speaking hypothetically. You want to be declared righteous before God, forensically righteous before God, then you're going to have to do every aspect of the law. You just can't talk about it. You just can't say you have it, but you've got to do it. Actually, I think that's what he meant. I think he's talking abstractly. You have, he didn't think it's possible to do it perfectly, but if you could do it perfectly, you would be declared righteous. When will you be declared righteous? On judgment day at the end of time. The NIV study Bible says that ver- the next two verses, or this, excuse me, this verse, verse 13 and verse 14 are a parenthesis, and so verses 12 and 16 should be read together. So verse 12 says this, All those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, that's the Gentiles, and all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law, that's the Jews, and verse 16 says on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. In other words, we're going to be declared righteous on judgment day. We go to verses 14 and 15. This is the parenthesis here. So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse or excuse them. Now, I think what Paul is doing here is trying to say, look, nobody is just automatically declared righteous because they have a law. The Jews, you have a law, but you're not automatically declared righteous because you have it. And the Gentiles have a law of their conscience, but they're not automatically justified just because they have a conscience they got to do it. they got to follow their conscience. And, of course, they can't do it perfectly. But if they're going to be justified, they got to follow their conscience. They're competing thoughts. That means, ooh, should I have done that? Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. We'll either excuse, accuse, or excuse them. Now, Paul says when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, that doesn't mean they do it perfectly. But they sometimes do it. For his NIV study Bible examples, they care for non-Christian Gentiles, care for the sick and the elderly. They honor their parents, they condemn adultery, some of them. Sometimes they act according to to justice, mercy, temperance, and truth, as Adam Clark says. That's true, what what I always call the good pagan. They're getting less and less of those these days in America, but they do exist. Now, when Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, this does not imply salvation by works, because the Gentiles cannot satisfy their conscience completely. They cannot keep the law written on their hearts completely any more than the Jews could keep the Mosaic law. Now, they can avoid the most egregious transgressions of the law by not killing, stealing, and perjuring and so forth. They can do that. But when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, for example, in Leviticus 19:18, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, come on now. How many times has that violated? But at any rate, Paul's main point here is not to talk about what it means to do what the law demands, either the law of conscience for the Gentile or the law of Moses for the Jew. That's not what he's talking about, what it means, how far do we have to fulfill that law, and we can't do it, so therefore we need the Holy Spirit of Christ. He's not on that right now. But his main point is, folks, just because you've got a law, Jewish folks mainly, if just because you have the law, that does not make you righteous. If you're going to be righteous, you've got to do it. You've got to conform your walk with your talk. Now, as I said, I'm going to say it again because it bears repeating. This verse, the Gentiles, when they instinctively do what the law demands, they have a law to themselves. That does not mean they are saved by man's unaided efforts. Here's a quote by people who would say that, and Clark denies it. Adam Clark denies it. Here's a quote. The apostle designed to intimate that nature independently of the influence of divine grace possessed such principles as were sufficient to guide a man to glory. Oh, no. That is not what Paul's trying to say, because man, according to his own nature, will never, ever satisfy his conscience or keep keep the law of his conscience, keep the, the holiness of God. He won't do it. Now, in verse 15, Paul says that Gentiles' consciousness have competing thoughts that will either accuse or excuse them. Well, Adam Clark has got an interesting take on that. He says that this is referring to pagans who use their own laws to publicly adjudicate a question. In other words, is this theft or is this not theft? Is this adultery or is this not adultery? Their competing thoughts will leave the accused. Now, I don't think so. I don't think he's talking about a public judicial forum in which you have the plaintiff and the defendant discussing things. I think he's talking about that. the thoughts inside your mind. Did I do that right or did I not do that right? We go to verse 16 of Romans 2. This is mid-sentence. In fact, it's right after that parenthesis. So let me go back and read verse 13 again. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous, verse 16, on the day when God judges what people have kept secret. So the doers of the law will be declared righteous on the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ Jesus. And what is it that people have kept secret? What is, it this, what is this secret thing that will be judged by God on Judgment Day? Here's the answer according to Jameson Fawcett, and Brown. Quote, the unfathomed depths of hypocrisy in the self-righteous. Basically, your hypocrisy, I kept the law, I kept the law, and God says, oh no, you didn't. Again, this, this chapter 2 at the end of chapter 2 of Romans is just basically a screed against hypocrisy. And of course, we can apply it to Gentiles as well as Jews too, although he's directly talking to the Jews here. Now, notice that this judgment of this secret hypocrisy is, as Paul puts it in verse 16, Romans 2, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news for those who accept it. It is bad news for those who do not accept it. Judgment is according to the gospel of Christ Jesus. Because Paul says right here in verse 16, when God judges what people have kept secret, so God is going to judge it according to Paul's gospel through Christ Jesus. So the gospel includes judgment. It's a nice thought for wussy-pussy evangelical Christians today who are scared of the word wrath and judgment. Romans 2.17, now if you call yourself a Jew and rest in the law, boast in God, I'll stop it right there. If you call yourself a Jew, Paul knew how a self-righteous Jew thought because he had been one. And so in verses 17 through 24, which we're getting ready to go over, he cites one advantage the Jews had after the other. The Jews thought that all these advantages were unqualified assets. But Paul is going to point out look, all your assets, all of your possession of the law will become a liability when you don't do what the law says, when you don't profess what you, when you don't practice what you profess. And so, therefore, you're going to get judged. He's getting ready to talk about judgment. We'll look at the four questions he asked in verses 17 through 22, all of which are designed to point out Jewish hypocrisy. Now, by the way, you know, first century Romans were very anti-Jewish. They were very anti-Semitic. It might be that the hypocrisy of the rabbis might have made them that way. Now, we don't want to blame the victim now, do we? But nonetheless, let's just face it. When people act obnoxious after a while, people don't like it anymore. And so they turn on, turn on you. Alright, let's start with verse 18, but it's in the mid-sentence, so I'll go back and read 17 again. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rest in the law, boasting in God, verse 18, you know his will, approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law, and of course the Jews thought that. They thought, first of all, in verse 18, they knew his will. Now, Actually, they did know his will because the law told them the will of the, their maker, the will of God. The problem is that they didn't practice what God told them. So they boasted that they knew his will. And actually, that's accurate. They had a, That was an accurate boast. Yeah, they, they knew God's will. They approved the things that were superior. Yes, yes, you know, marital faithfulness respecting other people's property and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they approved all that kind of stuff. And and they were instructed from the law, yes. They were taught every Saturday, every Sabbath in the synagogues. And then in verse 19, they became convinced that you are a guide for the blind. Well, now, they're not right in what they think because they were not a guide for the blind because they were hypocrites. They were not, and of course the blind would be the Gentiles, they were not a light to those in darkness. Again, those in darkness are Gentiles. They were not instructor of the ignorant, because how can you instruct somebody when you don't practice what you preach? You're not a teacher of the immature. How can you be mature when you're not keeping the things of maturity? Having the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law. Well, okay, they had the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law. The law was good. It wasn't the problem with the law. It was the problem with the professors of the law. They weren't keeping it. So the, this verse shows the typical Jewish attitude toward the Gentiles. They were blind, they were in darkness, they were ignorant, they were immature. It's sort of like Ivy League intelligentsia in America acts toward the rest of the United States. The Harvard people and the Yalies were stupid. We shop at Walmart. Now, it should be noted that perhaps the Gentiles were this. Maybe they were blind, maybe they were in darkness, maybe they were ignorant, maybe they were immature. Okay, But that doesn't give the Jews the right to be superior because they were just as blind, just as in the dark, just as immature and just as ignorant. So, nobody has the right to feel superior to anybody else just because of their religious religious privileges. Now, again, let me re-emphasize the point. It was not the law that was at fault. It was the hypocritical professors of the law that was at fault. Romans 7.12 says this, "...so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good." Romans 3.1-2, "...so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision?" considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. So the law is the spoken words of God. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and just and good. It's the Jews that weren't holy and just and good. We go to verse 21. You then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? In other words, you teach others to not commit adultery, but are you committing adultery yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? Now, of course, these verses point out the basic problems of the Jews of Paul's day. They were hypocrites. Well, let's take the the first action that the Jews are accused of doing by Paul. Do you steal? Well, what does Paul mean here? Here's an option which John Gill denies. The Jews are stealing away from the true sense of the law. No, that's a stretch. We don't believe that. John Gill affirms it's literal stealing. Now, when did the Jews literally steal? Well, here's a good example that Jesus gave in Matthew 23:14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses. That means their inheritances, their money. You devour widows' houses. Well, how did they devour widows' houses? Here's Adam Clark says this, quote, Teaching the people that even their aged parents must be left to starve, provided the children made a present to the temple of that which should have gone for their the parents' support. All right, so they steal from people's parents. I think that's a reasonable interpretation there. We go to verse 22. You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, yes, you do. That's what Paul expects to be answered there. Well, let's stop right there before in the middle of the verse. Do you commit adultery? Well, yes, they do. Now, here's a great, great quote from Adam Clark referring to rabbis. When traveling to different cities from their hometown, they would ask, who will be my wife for a day? What they would do is they would legally divorce their wife, because they were rabbis. They had control of the Jewish law. Divorce their wife, find a nice, sexy prostitute. Say, will you be my wife? Will you marry me just for one day? So then they would marry the prostitute, and then we have sex with the prostitute, and it's not adulterer, right? Because they married to her. I use marriage in a loose sense. And then at the end of the day, they divorce the prostitute so they can go to the next town, and find another wife to marry for the day. Jesus told them that they were adulterous. Matthew twelve thirty nine. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Now that adultery, adultery could be talking about spiritual adultery, and, if, and actually in Romans two twenty two, Paul could be talking about spiritual adultery. But it doesn't sound like it. He said, you must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? I think he's talking about the literal kind. How about John 8 verses 7b, let him who is without sin, and this is probably the sin of adultery he's talking about, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, at the woman caught in adultery. They couldn't throw the stones because they were all adulterers themselves. I think there was a whole lot of cheating going on. I don't think anybody made love at home anymore back there amongst the Jews. And so Paul's calling them out on it. He's appealing to common knowledge. You're committing adultery, folks. And you're going around hypocritically and piously pointing your finger at those Gentile adulterers. The next question he asks at the end of verse 22 is this. You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? Now, this is a hard one. And I've been wondering about this for years. I think I finally got the answer just this morning. There's two options as to what Paul could mean here. You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? That means, do you rob the temples of idols? Or it could mean, option number two, you who detest idols, do you commit sacrilege, i.e. against the temple in Jerusalem? Big difference. Well, I am going to take the position that the King James Version takes. And it's so nice to be able to agree with the King James Version against my modern Homan Christian Study Bible Version. It's rare that I think a KGV interpretation is better than others, but I believe it is here. Because what they do is they translate the, the Greek word, and it's just one Greek word, by the way. They translate it as commit sacrilege. So let me interpret the verse in a way that I think is proper. I'm going to, And I'm going to not use the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. I'll use the KGV. And let's see if we can make sense of it. You who detest idols, do you commit sacrilege? And what this means is, you Jews, you detest idols because idolatry, of course, is, what is it, the second amendment? Uh, no, you shall have no other gods before me, one of the Ten Commandments. I think it's the first one. You detest idols, and in fact, after the Babylonian exile, 586 BC, they came back in 537, they came back, and there was no more idolatry in Israel. So Paul is pointing out, yeah, it's true, you, with your mouth you detest idols, but you commit sacrilege against the temple in Jerusalem. Now, how would that be? John Gill gives some options as to how they could be committing sacrilege against the Jewish temple by polluting the worship with their own inventions changing the Levitical order of worship, pillaging sacrifices offered to the priest, stealing from the people's sacrifices, not offering sacrifices that were due in the temple, robbing the temple vessels and using them for their own use. Could be a whole lot of things that they were doing. Here's what Adam Bar- Alfred Barnes says, quote, How did the Jews commit sacrilege? Quote, This the Jews did by perverting from their proper use the offerings which were designed for his honor, "...by withholding what he demanded of tithes and offerings, and by devoting to other uses what was devoted to him, and which properly belonged to his service." Again, like when they said, oh, this ver- this pro- this gift is korban, so you can't support your parents with it, let them starve, but we- we're going to keep the money. Commit sacrilege that way. So, if you interpret the verse that way, Paul's basic point, which is, you Jews are hypocrites, his basic point is, you detest idols... But then you detest the God who is above all those idols. You detest idols, but you detest the God who hates all those I- I- idols. So you're a hypocrite. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown agree with that interpretation of committing sacrilege. So does John Gill. So does Alfred Barnes. However, the other point of view on this is that the, term, the Greek word there should be translated as rob temples. All right, well, let's look at the arguments for that. Well, the basic argument is, is that's a very literal translation of the Greek word. The Greek word is Hyerosules. It's only one word. Do you, hierosoules, it's a verb actually. Do you rob temples? And that's a very literal translation. Do you rob temples? And so some people think we ought to go with that. Well, the first problem with that is there's no contrast between detest idols and rob idols' temples. Why would you detest an idol? Well, first of all, let's see why there should be a contrast. Paul says, on the one hand, you say don't commit adultery, but you do commit adultery. There's the contrast. The first thing is what you say is good, but what you do is bad. So then you say you detest idols, but what you do is bad. Robbing an idol's temple is bad. What's bad about that? It seems like if you you detest idols which is a good thing by what you say, and then it be a good thing by what you do, robbing temples. There's no contrast. There's no good versus bad contrast. What's wrong with robbing a temple? Why is that so bad? Paul's trying to point out their bad actions. What's, what's bad about robbing an idol temple? Well, I guess it is stealing, but I mean, my gosh, it's robbing an idol. So there's your first problem right there. It doesn't make a lot of sense. The next question is, is, how would Jews rob a pagan temple? Well, since when did Jews go in and rob them? They committed adultery, no problem with that. They stole, we can say that. But when did they go around robbing pagan temples? They didn't do that. Well, here's one possibility of how they might have done this. I found this by a gentleman named Paul M. Elliot on the internet. He said that some Jews of the dispersion made a business venture of robbing pagan temples. And then they would sell the idols for profit, which directly violated the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 7.25 says, You must burn up the carved images of their gods. Don't covet the silver and gold on the images and take it for yourself, or else you will be ensnared by it, for it is abhorrent to the Lord your God. And so what these Jewish entrepreneurs would do is go rob the pagan temple, and then they would sell the temples. Well, okay, I don't know enough of the history. I don't know how much historical support there is for that. But I really think that's a stretch, that they were actually robbing temples. Now, the next problem with the view that it's literally robbing temples, first of all, is let's look at the Holman Christian Study Bible translation, which make it, makes it makes which it very clearly says that it's robbing pagan temples, not the Jewish temples. Paul says, "Do you rob their temples?" T H E I R, and it's not marked with a bracket. It's not. You would think it's in the Greek, but no, it's not in the Greek because the Greek literally is, as I said, the Greek word is hierosoulais. There is no there in the Greek. It says, "Do you rob temples?" That's the literal translation of that word, absolutely literal. Here's some English translations that translate it that way: the ESV, the New American Standard Version, the, the NIV, the Lexham English Bible, the Revised Standard Version, J.P. Green Literal. I got tired of looking there, so that's what it means: Do you rob temples? There's no there in there. Do you rob? It means do you rob temples in general. But there is a translator's interpretation, which in my opinion should not have been put in there. That was very misleading. Of It's a, a bad job, Homer Christian Study Bible. Shouldn't have done it. Okay, well, we got another problem with saying this is the Jerusalem temple. It says, Do you rob temples? That's the literal translation, do you rob temples? Oh, well, now we got a problem because the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was not plural temples. It was one temple. Well, the answer to that is very simple. If you go to the Greek, it's one word. Good and proper translation of that is, as according to Strong's lexicon, to be a temple robber. Are you temple robbers? There's no plural there in the translation. How about the KGV and Thayer's lexicon? Do you commit sacrilege? In other words, are you a temple robber? Do you, Are you the one that goes around and rob temples? It doesn't mean. It just It's just a generic word. A robber of temples is a temple robber is a person who commits sacrilege, and Paul is referring to the sacrilege done against the temple in Jerusalem by the hypocritical Jews. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's my solution to that little problem. I hope I'm right. I think I am. We go now to verse 23 of Romans 2. You who boast in the law, do do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Again, this is referring to hypocrisy. You steal, you commit adultery, you're dishonoring the temple. Now we go to Romans 2, verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's what hypocrisy will do, folks. It will give the truth of which you are not keeping a very bad name amongst people who might be convinced by that truth. this It's not clear where it is written. Paul says it is written. This is probably where it was written in Isaiah 52, five. This is probably the verse Paul was referring to. So now what have I here? This is the Lord's declaration that my people are taken away for nothing. For nothing? Its rulers wail. This is the Lord's declaration and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. The NIV margin assumes that that's the verse that Paul is quoting. Gill says that's probably the verse. Jameson Foster Brown says it is the verse. Now this is significant when Isaiah wrote, When were the Jews blaspheming? god's name all day long right before the assyrian exile because that's when isaiah wrote about 740 or so bc so paul is hinting the same sort of disaster is about to come on the jews of his day to somebody who really knew the jewish scriptures the name of god is being blasphemed among the gentiles that's what isaiah said right before the assyrians came in and wiped out the northern 10 tribes of israel and likewise the name of god is being blasphemed among the gentiles by you current day jews because you killed jesus you're persecuting the prophets from synagogue to synagogue and you're acting like a bunch of hypocrites and making god's name be blasphemed making my job of evangelizing the gentiles a heck of a lot harder you're going to be judged for this guys one day because in eighty seventy the romans are going to come and level your precious temple to the ground how are the jews blaspheming god's name what does blaspheme mean the root of the greek word means to slander Thayer says it means to speak lightly or profanely of sacred things. The New American Standard Bible translates that word in other places in other scriptures as dishonored, hurling abuse. In other words, you dishonor God, you hurl abuse at God, you malign God, you revile God, you speak against God, you speak of God as evil. Let's make an application here. How is the name of God blasphemed among the Gentile pagans in America today? How about the prosperity gospels Gospels living in $23 million houses? How about adulterous megachurch leaders every time you pick up the paper there's somebody else is screwing his secretary? How about the Catholic pedophile priest? You don't think there's going to be judgment for that? Judgment begins in the household of God. And by golly, there needs to be a purging, a cleansing of the church, a cleansing of the Aegean stables, if you will. There's a lot of poop that needs to be flushed out by some raging rivers. Okay, Paul says in verse 25, For circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, it's nice if you got the law if you keep it. But if you don't keep it, you might as well be uncircumcised, might as well not have the law. In fact, your circumcision doesn't mean mean anything if you don't back that circumcision up, that sign that you're a member of the Jewish covenant. If you don't back it up by your actions, it would be better if you hadn't been circumcised to start with because you might as well be uncircumcised. You're just like a Gentile dog. Verse 26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will his uncircumcision not be counted as circumcision? On the other hand, if you've got a Gentile who's not circumcised, but he's basically trying to keep the law of his conscience, keeping basic morality, and if he gets saved, he keeps the law even better through the power of the Holy Spirit, well then, hey, it doesn't matter whether he's circumcised or not. And, of course, this is Paul has said this, this is the Jerusalem Council, you know, which has happened about, what, eight years, seven or eight years earlier. The the church had already decided that you don't have to be circumcised to get saved, and Paul's just emphasizing that point. Hey, you don't have to be righteous before God if you're uncircumcised. Excuse me, if you're uncircumcised, that doesn't make you unrighteous before God. You could be righteous before God and be uncircumcised at the same time. But on the other hand, if you're circumcised and a member of the outwardly circumcised and an outward member of the covenant people, but you break the law, it doesn't mean a thing. You might as well be uncircumcised. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Israel. We read in Genesis 17:10 through 11, This is my covenant which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. So circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant with God and Israel. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was a sign of the covenant. So it was very important, but it doesn't mean a thing if you don't keep the law. And Leviticus 12.3 says the flesh of his foreskin must be circumcised on the eighth day. So that was a very important part of the Jewish ritual, the Jewish law. And as as a result, as the NIV study Bible points out, the Jews had come to regard circumcision circumcision as an automatic guarantee of God's favor. Well, it was a big deal. And so they make it as a big deal. And next thing you know, it's a ritual. It's something that's so important that it doesn't matter. It's an external thing. It doesn't matter what we have on the inside of our hearts. Now... What are some Christian analogies? This is what I like. This is where the application really gets to be fun. This is from my good friend Steve Ackerson. He says, people can say, well, I was born into a Christian nation. I was born in America, therefore, I'm righteous. Well, I don't think many people say that anymore, because for one thing, did a Christian nation ever exist? You know, I just saw this guy. What's that guy's name? He's got a wall builder's ministry. I forgot his name. and. He went through all the documents and quoted how America was started on Christian principles, which I do not deny in the least, because we had a Christian culture back then. Today we have an anti-Christian culture, and the church is being influenced by that anti-Christian culture. Well, back then, at the time of the Founding Fathers, we had non-Christians being influenced by the Christian culture. I mean, let's face it, Thomas Jefferson was no Christian, Benjamin Franklin was no Christian, and yet they were very much influenced by Christian principles. And so it's very easy to say, well, see, there, look at all of our, all the, all the heritage we have as, Christian, as a Christian nation, therefore I'm American and therefore everything's, I'm righteous. Oh, no, it doesn't work that way. And besides, America was never a Christian nation. We were a nation that was influenced greatly by Christian principles, but oh, no, we weren't a Christian nation any more than the Jews were a godly nation when they were under the covenant back in the Old Testament. They committed idolatry every chance they got. Or a, a, a modern American Christian can say, well, I was born into a Christian family, therefore I'm a Christian. Now, there's a lot of people who do that. I just talked to a young man, 22 years old, just got baptized. He's on fire for Jesus. He loves God, and he realizes what a sinner he was, and that he, when he got baptized, he said, I just got one thing to say, amazing grace. He was actually a child preacher in a Pentecostal church, and he said he didn't any more believe than a rock on the side of the road believed, but he was preaching the gospel. And he ended up being guilt-ridden and confused and screwed up. And he got saved on the season in the military. He was in the Middle East, in the middle of Muslim country. And all of a sudden, just decided to turn his life over to God. Well, being born in a Christian family and being a child preacher in a Christian church, that doesn't mean a thing. If you can't live it, it just becomes hypocrisy. I'm a member of a church. Who cares? I don't care if you're a member. I can point out, I used to be a member of a church, too, a big, fancy I won't mention the name of the denomination, but it was a big denominational church in the middle of my hometown where the two main roads intersected. I never saw so much hypocrisy in my life. That hypocrisy almost turned me against Christ. It came very close to doing that. Almost lost my faith in that church. Just because you're a member of a church, that doesn't mean that you are a member of God's people. If you walk down the aisle when you're 10 years old, I believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean a thing if you don't practice what you preach. Oh, I got baptized. Who cares? It's got to be something internal as well as external. Now, that's not to just dis- baptism is important. External things important. Going to church is important. External things are important, but external things like the law, without the internal heartfelt devotion to the external thing, those external things then become leveraged backwards, and they become evil instead of good. Now, once again, we come across the problem of observing the law or keeping the law. What does that mean? For circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. What is Paul talking about? Observing the law. Well, it can't mean perfectly keep the law. Nobody could do that. It just means basically not working on Saturday and don't have sex with your neighbor's wife and don't covet what they want and what they have. Don't steal. Don't perjure yourself in court. That kind of thing. You can do that. Pagans can do that. So what it means is to generally keep the law. As Jameson Fawcett Brown says, it does not mean perfectly keep the law because that just doesn't make any sense. It's not natural. However, John Gill disagrees with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that Paul here means perfectly keep the law, so we read it this way. For circumcision benefits you if you perfectly keep the law. Well, in that case, Paul would be speaking hypothetically, saying you would be benefited if you could keep the law perfectly, but you can't. Well, that's not totally unreasonable. I mean, John Gill's no dummy, but I really don't think that's what he means. I think he means if you observe the law generally you would be benefited by your circumcision. Now, in verse 26, Paul says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will his uncircumcision not be counted as circumcision? And, of course, the rhetorical question, the answer is yes. So if you're uncircumcised, you keep the law, God will look at you as being circumcised or as being a part of the covenant, if you will. Now, who is Paul talking to about the uncircumcised? Is he talking about uncircumcised pagans who don't believe in Jesus? Then their uncircumcision is counted as circumcision. They are part of God's people. If they basically keep the law of their conscience and don't rob, kill, and steal, I don't think so. Jameson Fawcett and Brown agrees with me and denies that. It's not talking about Gentile pagans. It's talking about, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown, Gentile pagans who have become believers. Gentile believers. Now they keep the moral law through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to back up Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirmation there that this is Gentile believers who have who are counted as being circumcised when they keep the law, even though they're uncircumcised, as Gentile pagan believers, we read in just a couple of verses later in Romans 2.29, Paul says this, On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. The inward circumcision that Paul is talking about when Paul, when Gentiles keep the law by their conscience is an inward circumcision by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you get circumcised by the Holy Spirit in your heart? you got to be a believer. So I think verse 29a confirms what Jameson Fawcett and Brown is saying here about that Paul means that it's an uncircumcised Christian man who keeps the law's requirements. And when that happens, his uncircumcision is counted as circumcision. And by the way, this is an, a side, at least this is a rabbit trail. Most everybody, most every little boy now is circumcised, but that's not according to to the law, it's not according to Jewish ritual and tradition. So basically, we Gentile males are uncircumcised according to the Jewish law, but nonetheless, if we believe in Jesus, we are counted as a member of the covenant people. We're accounted as if we were circumcised, and we have the sign of the covenant. It's in our hearts. It's not in our flesh, but we have the sign of the covenant. We go now to verse 27 of Romans 2. A man who is physically uncircumcised but who fulfills the law would judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. Again, he's talking about the Jews who are hardy towards the Gentiles. And he's saying, no, you judge the Gentiles, you're going to get judged by the Gentiles because they keep the law and you don't. And that's what's more important, is keeping the law. Again, we have that problem of what it means to fulfill the law, keep the law. Again, I think it just means in general, not perfectly. We go now to verses 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. How do you you be a Jew outwardly by being circumcised? True circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, and not the letter. In other words, by the Holy Spirit and not by the legal, not by the letter, not by the legal requirements of the Mosaic Law that says on the eighth day a baby has to be circumcised. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. You keep the law, you will get a lot of praise from men. If you're a civic, righteous person person who goes to the Qantas Club every week or month, however often they meet, people talk about how you do good works for the community and you give money to the poor and so forth, and people look at you and say, oh, what a civically-minded person, that is. Yeah, you get praise from men, just like the Pharisees got praise from men. But God ain't praising you. He could care less. He cares about what's in the heart, not what's on the outside. This metaphor of circumcision of the heart is everywhere in the scriptures, because the Jews love to take external rituals and justify themselves by keeping external ritual. Circumcision of the heart means when a believer is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as the NIV study Bible says, and we can look at a bunch of scriptures where that phrase circumcision of the heart is Deuteronomy ten sixteen. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. See, it's not only in the New Testament; it's in the Old Testament. Circumcise your hearts, not just your foreskins. First Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart talking about don't look at Saul's tall stature and he looks so cool but he's a jerk on the inside Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live Jeremiah 4 4 circumcise yourselves to the Lord remove the foreskin of your hearts (laughs) men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem otherwise my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds this was Jeremiah's fruitless preaching before the hard-hearted Israelites right before they got destroyed by Babylon, 586 B.C. Jeremiah 9:26. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the Ammonites, Moab, and all the inhabitants of the desert who clipped the hair on their temples, all these nations are uncircumcised, and the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So all the pagan tribes weren't a member of God's covenant community, but the Jews weren't either because they were uncircumcised in their heart. And so they're going to get... Carried off into exile. Ezekiel 44, verse 7. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in both heart and flesh, to occupy my sanctuary, you defiled my temple while you offered my food, the fat and the blood, you broke my covenant with all your detestable practices. Ezekiel 44, 9. This is what the Lord says. No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, may enter my sanctuary, not even a foreigner who is among the Israelites. So you see that uncircumcised in heart phrase is used everywhere in the Old Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, with that, we are finished with Romans chapter 2. We will continue with Romans chapter 3 in the next audio. In Romans 3, we see that God is righteous and he has every right to judge and that we are not righteous and we have every right and God has every right to judge us. There is no one that's righteous. No, not one. That's coming up in Romans 3. I hope you stay tuned for that one and I hope you enjoyed this audio.